This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Are you looking for a career change, but worry that you'll face difficulty trying to get your first job in closure? Do you have a limited functional programming background? Would you like a guided path to learning professional closure? PurelyFunctional.tv's online mentoring has just launched. It is step-by-step online mentoring, taking you from closure dappler to professional. Sign up with the link PurelyFunctional.tv geekery to get 50% off the first month. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, coming up on February 18th and 19th of 2016 in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place and registration is now open. Visit lambdadays.org to find out more or to register. And make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win, that's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4, D-W-I-N, for 10% off registration. Right after that, on February 20th, Closure D will be taking place in Berlin. Closure D is an independent, non-profit conference from the Closure community for the Closure community. Focus points will be interesting developments and ideas in the global Closure community, as well as introductory-level talks highlighting the fun aspects of learning and messing with Closure. Visit www.closured.de to find out more. Erlang Factory San Francisco will be taking place on the 10th and 11th of March, with training on the 7th through the 9th of March and the 14th through the 16th of March. The call for talks is now open, but make sure to submit your talk by the 15th of December. And make sure to look for the very early bird rate, which is open on the 7th of December. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media. I need your help to help spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Eros Proctor, and this week with us we have Dr. Conrad Barsky. Conrad, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I live in Chicago these days, and I work for a large uh, medical software company called Walters Kluver in their clinical solutions department. And within there, they have something called an innovation lab. And I work on basically software that runs in hospitals, basically looking at patient data, trying to find medical diseases. But in my spare time, I wrote a couple of books. I'm probably best known for the book Land of Lisp, which has already been around the block for a while now, which is on Common Lisp. And so that's sort of how I fit into the functional programming world. Now, you've got an interesting background. And because you're coming from a medical doctor, when I say Dr. Conrad Barsky versus a PhD in computer science. So how did you kind of get into software from a medical background and even then make the transition into functional programming? Yeah. So like a lot of folks, I got into programming very early, like, you know, when I was nine or 10, when my parents first bought a a TI-99-4A at a discount store a long time ago, and I started, you know, learning how to program it. But when I uh, got to the point where I was looking at a career, programming by itself always seems more interesting if you combine it with some other profession or field. And so at that time, I got into medicine, hoping to get into kind of medical software applications. And so after I finished medical school, I ended up getting more and more full-time into medical software and started working in the commercial field, building medical applications. 
So that was a more of a stint of getting a specialized degree in medicine so you can actually bring domain knowledge into the software work then? Yeah, that's kind of how I was thinking about it. Now, of course, I have to say I didn't realize at that point just how involved medicine is as a profession. So my dream would have been to actually get a few years of sort of clinical experience under my belt. But when you look at just, it's tough to keep another interest alive if you do a a residency and all of that. So I kind of had to make the decision at some point if I really loved working with software. After I got my MD, I kind of changed tax a little bit and kind of got more into the software side. The other thing that was also kind of tricky for me is that I grew up in Florida in kind of a backwater area in Bradenton, Florida. And nowadays, that wouldn't really matter. Like, it doesn't really matter where you are in the the world or in the country. If you are interested in a particular topic, even deep in computer science, you have all the resources at your fingertips to kind of dig into that stuff. But back then, before the internet, that didn't really exist. So I kind of became uh, my proficiency as a programmer was more among the lines of developing and shipping products. I would work in my uh, part-time while I was in undergrad and stuff doing software development. So because of that, and because I never did a formal computer science degree, by the time I got out of school and was also, again, doing medical software, I really didn't have any kind of academic sort of computer science exposure. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons my Land of List book kind of became somewhat popular is because that was shortly before then I had just discovered Lisp and sort of these academic computer science subjects. And so I had a lot of excitement about them. Yet at the same time, I had decades of professional experience building software. And so that kind of combination, I think, is maybe what what made it interesting. And how did you actually find Common Lisp? What was that path that actually put that on your radar and caused you to start digging into Lisp? So initially, I was very hardcore into C and C++ and just you know trying to wring every ounce of performance out of hardware. And in fact, in undergrad, I did work for a contractor for Atari video games. This was when Atari had their very last attempt at a video game console. It was called the Atari Jaguar. So I was lead developer on a game called Flipout on that system. So I was you know really into the raw performance side of programming back then. But then the thing you run into, if all you do is C and C++, and you don't really have a very open view on other things because you're in Florida and the internet doesn't exist, then you very quickly realize you want to build all these cool things. And most of them end up requiring that you kind of write pre-compiler type stuff. You either do really nasty C macros or just write C from a different language or something like that. And you start doing all these really ugly things. And then at some point, my insight was when I watched Bjarn Sturstrup, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name, giving an interview, and they asked him, hey, you know, what other things do you think people should look at that might end up in C++ in the future? And he said, look at what the functional programming people are doing. And so then that brought me to uh, actually first to Haskell, because, you know, if you do functional programming, that's pretty much as functional as it gets. I got into that, but it still didn't really satisfy my itch because With Haskell, yes, you have this incredible power, but you also need a, uh, there's a very steep learning curve with Haskell. One learning curve, just being able to do basic Haskell programming. But if you really want to do sophisticated architecture type stuff with Haskell, you really uh, have to understand kind of the type theory side of it. And that was kind of a hurdle for me. But then shortly after that, I discovered Common Lisp and Lisp macros. And that was just a dream for me because it meant I could get the benefits from functional programming, 
But then if I just wanted to, you know, go under the hood and kind of rewrite my code to do some cool things in Lisp, it's a piece of cake with macros. So, so that's how I ended up being a Lisp guy. And I don't know if you've got the experience with Scheme and if you looked at that at all, but what made you choose Common Lisp if you had looked at Scheme? If not, did you just stumble across Common Lisp specifically or was there something about, I guess, what about Common Lisp is what picked it up when you went and picked up a Lisp? Yeah, so I'd say I did both Common Lisp and Scheme at the time. And probably the reason I went with Common Lisp was at the time, Common Lisp had more emphasis on performance. So they had some very sort of commercial grade implementations that were nice and fast. And you always had some issues back then with Scheme, with the fact that it has the call CC capability, you know, call with current continuation, that that made it a little harder to write efficient compilers, which I'm sure is probably no longer an issue <laughs> these days. But back then, you know, I was looking for the raw performance. And the other problem with Scheme, of course, is as I was saying, I love to just mess around with the low-level uh, macro stuff. And of course, Scheme is really uh, designed for that because they want you to do hygienic macros. And by that time, I had already dug into some of the writings from Paul Graham. And everything he uh, did was pretty much stuff that you couldn't do in Scheme. I hope I have the right term, the anaphoric macros, where you essentially explicitly refer to variable names in macros or create variable names in macros that you then use outside of it without doing it in a clean way, like Scheme prevents you from shooting yourself in the foot when you do that. But Paul Graham uh, really likes to do that stuff, and I did as well. So that's kind of how I ended up in Common Lisp. Now, it's true, though, that I was already into Clojure, by the time the offer came up to do the Common Lisp book, and I was thinking about talking the publisher into letting me write a closure book instead, but it was still very early. I mean, closure had just come out around that time, and nobody knew what closure was at that point. Now, of course, that would have been very prescient if I had done a closure book that early on, but uh, Common Lisp worked out pretty well too. So you've done a number of books or mini books, or at least articles around Lisp? Because I know I've read Casting Spells in Lisp and haven't gotten a chance to hit your land of Lisp yet, but what was kind of your series of progressions of writing these articles or tutorials or mini books in relation to your bigger book of Land of Lisp? So what happened is I was always kind of thinking about the obvious similarity between a, a Lisp REPL, you know, read eval print loop, basically just a console where you can write in commands and kind of write Lisp on the fly. The similarity between that and like a text adventure game like Zork is so obvious, right? So I was thinking, hey, what if we just turn the Lisp REPL into Zork by adding commands that give you like a little inventory and let you walk around locations? So that's how casting spells came about. It was just a silly uh, sort of tutorial that turns a Lisp REPL into a little text adventure with silly pictures and cartoons. And then after that came out and people enjoyed that, the goal with that was really saying, hey, you can only do this in Lisp. It's very difficult to do this in any other language because if you want to do something like a text adventure, you want to be able to say, pick up the cheese or whatever. But then in another language, if you have the word cheese, because that's not a variable you've defined or whatever, you'd have to somehow mark that you know, with quotes or whatever. But in Lisp, you don't have to because you can just write your get function or whatever as a macro and then quote the object you want to pick up to turn it into a symbol inside of the macro. And so you can do neat stuff like that where you can, on the REPL, essentially completely change the language just in a silly way to make a little text adventure. So that's kind of what the point of that was. So after I did that, 
No Starch Press, one of the editors there really liked it and contacted me about doing a book. And then uh, immediately after that, I thought, hmm, I should just make a book where each chapter is a new little computer game, sort of like those 101 basic games books that were written back in the late 70s, I think, or maybe early 80s. But just this idea that there's just like these type-in games in each chapter. Of course, that was a kind of a, an insane idea because not only did I have to have like interesting working games in each chapter, but then each game in the beginning could only use features that I discussed up to that point in the book. So it made it just a logistical nightmare to introduce new features and new games in parallel. And that's why the book took me so long to finish. So I wrote that book and then Realm of Racket came out of that as another book, but I didn't really do any active writing on that. Instead, the folks behind Racket, which back then was Racket Scheme and PLT Scheme, they took the parts that made sense for Scheme out of the book and changed other parts and really, to be honest, improved a lot of stuff because they had a lot more computer science chops than me in a way and created this sort of separate book, Realm of Racket. And it's sort of an interesting hybrid in that there's parts of it that are just completely different from Land of Lisp, and then other parts are just directly verbatim out of Land of Lisp. But it makes for a really nice book for learning racket. And then after that, I caught the whole Bitcoin bug and wrote a book on Bitcoin. So that's my most recent one. That's a good background. Having read Casting Spells and Lisp, I kind of identified with some of those old game styles that you were using. And then I've heard very good things about Land of Lisp. And when people recommend, if you want to get better at Lisp and learn Lisp, read LOL. And they're like, but use both. Use Let Over Lambda. But before you do that, the good introduction before you get to Let Over Lambda is read Land of Lisp. And that'll kind of give you that foundation. And they're both it was one of those, it's the other LOL book, but they're both highly <laughs> recommended. And like, if you pick up the wrong LOL book, don't worry, you've still got a good book. And so they're <laughs> like, if you pick up Land of Lisp, that's still a good book to read. And I've heard that that was fully game-based. So that game thing, you mentioned it was a throwback to the old books of software where it's go, here's your type in program, go execute it, go run it, get a feel for what it is. And you mentioned your background doing some game development previously before you were going into your med degree full time. Yeah. So was the game background always something that was kind of in your mind at some point or at least excitement about that you said, I could do a bunch of small little programs or I could do a bunch of small little games because the attractions that games have had for a generation of people where that kind of got him in and said, I'm starting on this take home, throw away, cheapy computer kind of thing. Although they weren't cheap by any means, <laughs> but the... The whole things from Radio Shacks or TI or whatever that was meant for a home computer. And then kind of getting in, getting under the covers, tearing things apart, looking at that stuff and how it works and having all these type-in programs and potentially the games that actually had some of the code with it. Was it that excitement of being able to make a running game that made you choose the game route when you wrote these books as well? When I was a little kid and I uh, wrote some simple, you know, basic video games for like the ti nine four a or Commodore. I just remember how excited I was as a little kid being able to, to do something like that. The whole idea of having your own little world and being able to control it and creating your own rules. And that's an excitement that I still have to this point. I just recently saw a little console that you can get for like 100 bucks that's built on an Arduino with just a little display and can write like a little very small program and play it on your little console. And I know at some point I'm going to 
try to see if I can talk my daughter, uh, who's still a little too young at this point, but in, in a couple of years, maybe we'll make a little video game for that at some point. I just think it's so fun to write little games. Now, on the other hand, it's probably not a very good move from an economic perspective to make video games at this point, because a lot of people just really enjoy video games so much that the caliber of the games being created these days is just, even for like little indie games, is, is so high and the competition so fierce that it's kind of hard to imagine actually doing a serious game project anymore for me. <laughs> so I've you know, definitely been thinking more about other applications. And now that I've found other things that I've gotten excited about, like when I got into functional programming, that was also really exciting. And now uh, it's, you know, starting to think about blockchain type stuff is also really interesting to me. So there's definitely uh, fun games that also make a lot of sense. That's good to know, because... Again, I've heard high praise about that book, and I had seen that it got translated into Realm of Racket, and I think there was a closure version that was someone was trying to pick up and do some translations for and say, here's the closure version of Land of Lisp, and there's a Lisp-flavored Erlang one I think that I've heard go off and on or be talked about in the works, and one or two others as well, I think. I think there may have been something else besides the Racket one, and another, as far as another variation of a Lisp. And so it's had a lot of good press, and it seems to, from what I've seen, is there's been lots of excitement about that book and the way it approached this as, here's small little pieces that you pick up, you learn, and you actually, you get that fast feedback, you get that interactivity that you have lacking in so many other programs where you're trying to set up a whole bunch of environment just to be able to get something up and running, and you don't feel that quick win. Right. Yeah, I agree. That was the main point, is, is the idea that I mean, I remember in the TI-99-4A uh, instruction manual that I had a long, long time ago, the very first game in there was I pick a number between 1 and 100, and then, or you pick a number between 1 and 100, and the computer tries to guess it. And that's just such a simple program. It's a simple binary search. And it's just so fun that, it, that the computer already kind of is almost like doing a little uh, AI inside of a video game with only like five lines of code. Uh, it just makes it a lot more interesting. That and the other stories I hear about those little basic programs or whatever, where it was like, put your name in and it just greets you back with a hello world prompt. Yeah, sure. But you don't realize that the magic the first time you say, oh yeah, hey, there's my name. And then if I put my sister's name in, I can do an if clause and give some kind of other response that's not as nice because ha ha ha, she's my sister or my brother <laughs> puts his name in and he gets he gets another little nickname because... I can do this and they have nothing to say about it. So when I say, hey, look at my program and they type in their name, they get that response and that little feeling of, hey, I can make the computer do this. Yeah. Isn't that amazing that I'm actually making the computer do this? Yeah, yeah. And of course, people always lament that computers are not really designed for programming as much anymore as they used to be. Uh, on the other hand, just yesterday, actually, I downloaded a program called Hopscotch for the iPad and it basically, it lets you take like little animated characters, put them on the screen and have like simple rules uh, that you can enter in for how they interact with each other and made a little like a uh, simple game, you know, where you have to jump over a rectangle with my daughter. And it really captures the basic elements of programming pretty well. And in its own way, I think it, the new tools now also can have some of that same appeal. It's just in a different way now, because <laughs> back then you were forced to learn it. There was not, nothing else you could do with the computer. And now you have to go out of your way to, to actually do some programming on it. So you also mentioned you did some with Haskell in the beginning as you first started getting into functional languages. And I know you have a little mini book 
tutorial, getting started guide with Haskell. So how did you find, I guess first is, has you, have you done much Haskell since that your first experience with Haskell? Or is that something that you kind of did back then and haven't really gone back to too much and tried to pick it up and see, can I think in this way now that I've kind of gotten used to functional programming in general, and now I can go back and just focus on the types? I would probably give the advice for anyone who's still really young. If they had to pick a language, I would say probably Haskell is your best bet. The purity of it and and the mathematical nature and the type system really have a lot going for it. I mean, I personally just find the learning curve to be really daunting. And at some point, I just had to make the decision if I'm doing serious projects that I want to get done on a timeline, am I going to do them in Clojure or do them in Haskell? And because I never reached that comfort level with Haskell, I don't use it as much anymore. And the place I kind of got stuck is when I was trying to juggle things like state and random numbers and IO and stuff in different monads and have those in a program. And then one day, the day arrives for every Haskell programmer where they have to learn about monad transforming. And once I reached that point, I just couldn't get up to that next level. That was just too much. <laughs> and so at that point, uh, I mean, the thing about Haskell is, is you write these really dynamically typed and you know, people will argue that it's actually very well typed, but it's these languages that are dynamically typed like Clojure uh, just make um, explorative programming so simple, but you're clearly giving up a lot compared to Haskell when you do that. But for me personally, my productivity level is a lot higher in Clojure than in Haskell. And I just, if I knew I was going to live for a million years, I would spend the first 30 learning Haskell probably. But with my limited lifespan, I think it's better spent with closure, or at least that's the decision I've made. <laughs> so you said you got stuck on some of the monad transformations and all that stuff when it came down to dealing with IO and random numbers, but you would have had to have started with at least a little bit of types. And Closure and Common Lisp and even Scheme are very, very dynamically typed. How did you find just the intro of the types in Haskell at just the forefront of just even the basic types without the monads versus the working in more dynamic language? Because I can see that even being just a difference in how you go about doing explorative things because you're now in Haskell, from what I've seen, the way it works is you're thinking more upfront about your contracts and then you're figuring out how something might work versus the Lisp version is you've got that REPL up and running. You're able to kind of put stuff in, take it apart, have it break, have it crash, and then say, oh, well, here's what I actually need. And you're kind of looking at the contract of what's needed after that instead of up front. Is that something that you've found is true in your experience? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I uh, definitely, if you start a Haskell project, you really need to think first about types. And if you have a lot of Haskell under your belt, that's a very efficient way to work. But if you don't have a lot of Haskell under your belt, you tread a lot of water just thinking at the type level, and it takes you a long time. I mean, certainly, if all you're doing is basic Haskell types, you know, dealing with things like building simple sort of tree relationships between your types and and dealing with a basic I.O. monad and stuff like that, you know, that's quite doable. But yeah, you still clearly kind of have to think ahead of time about your types. I think a lot of people in each of the different sort of popular functional languages, they all kind of say the same thing. Like if you're dealing with Erlang, you think about messages. If you're dealing with Haskell, you think about types. If you deal with closure, you think in syntax expressions. And those are all kind of valid ways of of working. And yeah, (laughs) 
I really like Haskell and I always kind of regret not being more proficient at it, but it's all a matter of time investment. Plus, I think there's a certain thing where I think Haskell got a little bit, well, I, I hate to use this pun, but lazy in that they missed out on a, a few things where closure kind of jumped ahead, mainly the, the stuff with the Bagwell paper with the persistent data structures, which were kind of pretty well built into the core of closure very early on, whereas the guys in, in the Haskell world couldn't make that kind of jump as quickly. And as far as I know, you know, they have libraries for all that stuff now as well in Haskell. But if you want to deal, I mean, like things, I remember when I was in doing Haskell stuff, like dealing with things like hash maps in Haskell, maybe like six or seven years ago, I remember it being kind of painful, these types of record types, whereas in Clojure, it was a piece of cake. And so, yeah, so that was also kind of tricky. I, th I think because Haskell always was kind of the reigning king of being the most elegant sort of on a computer science level programming language. There were a few practical things where closure kind of jumped ahead of them. So I think there's something to that as well. You've mentioned a number of times that you're now doing a lot of closure and even your land of list book, you kind of wished it could have possibly been closure. But how did you kind of get introduced to closure from the list community? Geez, that's a good question. I think it was a matter of the day comes where you want to use a Java library and then very quickly you kind of jump on the closure bandwagon because that kind of was the early benefit of closure was the tight integration with Java and having access to these vast libraries that, you know, common list people could never even imagine. And then also there was this other language back then that briefly flourished or not flourished, but made an appearance called ARC, which was created by Paul Graham. And it was actually had some elements of closure at the time. The main problem with common Lisp from just a pure sort of programming language perspective back then was that common Lisp, so clearly the paradigm now, everybody agrees, like if you want a programming language, you have to have a decent data structure for lists or sequences one for key value associative structures, like, you know, hash maps, something like that. And then you need to have sets. And if you don't have those built in at the lowest level of your language, you're kind of going to be in for some pain. And in common Lisp, the model was always, it's Lisp, it's about list processing. And lists were always the first class citizen and things like hash maps and sets were, were second class citizens. And that's where Clojure really got it right is they had literals and the ability to print and read all those basic data types built into the core language. And ARC did the same thing shortly before closure. I assume it's likely that Rich Hickey got the idea from that from ARC. Oh, I don't know, it might be independently invented as well. So I think that from a practical standpoint and the Java integration really at early on made closure really appealing. Now, of course, the reason Clojure is appealing is because everything's about web programming. And Clojure has an extremely good story for web development with uh, the fact that they have a very nice language with Clojure script that can compile down to JavaScript. So that makes it really appealing. And then, of course, in the last couple of years, this interesting stuff came out of Facebook called React. And that really linked very nicely with what you could do in Clojure script to make a really sweet web development environment. So the closure now, is that mostly closure script and doing the front end stuff, or is there a lot of closure on the back end running on the JVM that captures your interest, or is it mainly just the front end? Well, I think the front end is always interesting because as a game programmer, I always want to interact with the user and you can do that very nicely in a browser. 
Now, however, if you're doing any closure and closure script development, it's 50-50 uh, closure and closure script. But it's a little bit different now even because they finally, in, in the recent uh, versions of closure, they have a unified syntax where you have these things. I can't think of the term right now, but what it lets you do is you can now write files with a CLJC extension and those you can load in both as closure script or closure source files. And you just have escape sequences in them that if you need to do things that only work on the client or the server or, you know, one of the two environments, you can get in there and make low level changes. But so now you can basically write agnostic code that doesn't even know if it's running in a web browser or it's running on a server in a JVM. And that's really nice. So that's interesting. I hadn't heard of that development about the common core, I guess, the closure core kind of stuff that's applicable across both ClojureScript and Clojure itself. And so you mentioned kind of with that, it's running on both the client and the server. Have you noticed in your playing with it that you've actually been able to take advantage of that and have the same code available to both? Or are you still kind of writing different sets of code for the front end versus the back end? And the code reuse is not the story, but just being able to write and have the power of closure as a whole and a lisp is really where it gets down to versus the code sharing like people talk about with JavaScript. So you can definitely do meaningful code sharing with this type of approach for your client and server. Where it gets really interesting now is these new technologies that are coming out that are built around graph query languages which in a way is a misnomer because whenever I think of graph queries, I think about these databases that are designed for like storing social networks and stuff. But actually, if you look at this thing called GraphQL that Facebook recently released, or you look at Falcor, a JavaScript tool set that comes out of Netflix, they are built around this model where you think of the data that you need to present in your user interface as being in the server as really having the structure of a graph. And what you want to do is your components that are on your web page that might be nested in complex ways. Clearly, in your web page, you want your data structure that holds your app state to have kind of a tree-like structure because HTML is a tree. So you need to have your data in a tree. But then that tree that you have in your client you have to be able to somehow synchronize it with a database, which is a graph. So they have these languages now that are kind of reminiscent of SQL, except that they're composable. So you can have components within components within components that all have these queries that say, hey, I need this data from the server or that data from the server. And the components all kind of talk to each other and they build a mega query that is composed out of all the component queries. And they can then send that very efficiently to the server. And it's both great from a performance perspective because, you know, you no longer have these chatty RESTful protocols, but you can kind of just populate your entire front end app with a single query to the database. But then also it has a lot of organizational benefits. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is with these types of models, you often have a database both inside the web browser and you have a database on the server. And both of those need to be reconciled with these graph queries. And so there you really have the case where there's a lot of code duplication, where you really want to have one code base that sort of says, this is the structure of the data that my app and my UI needs. And some of it lives on the client, some of it lives on the server. And then you can query them and in some kind of synchronized way, it will know what to pull out of the client state and what it has to fetch from the server. And so there you're starting to get into these models where you really do need a unified language and have common code, both on client and server. I don't know if that made sense. 
That makes sense. And I've heard a lot more about GraphQL. And when I first heard about it, I didn't get what it was until I started seeing some more explanations about the gist being you're only asking for the data that you want instead of getting a whole bunch of data. So you're kind of pre-formatting a desired request from the server, which is something I've tried to push in certain places. One place being custom reports we were trying to do was you're running a report. Here's all the columns you could get, but you could actually do something like GraphQL where you say, here's the total set of columns. You get to pick one of these three sets, which is your grouping, and then you get a however other many you want to see. So got an interesting appeal in that perspective. So I can start to see where the closure and the closure script unifying, especially around things like GraphQL. Yeah, I mean, the kind of use case is, you know, you're, you're building something like a Facebook application and maybe you have a list of people, you know, somewhere in the application and it says how many friends that person has. And then somewhere else will say, you know, I friended this person. And so you might have two or three different places that both need to change in your UI based on whether or not you are friends with one particular person, because that data might be reported from different components in different ways in the same front end UI. So you run into these weird problems where your UI data is best described as a tree, but some of the branches of that tree have dependencies on the same data on the back end. And the back end could be inside the browser or the back end could be on the server. But you know, you somehow need to project these complex relationships into a tree-like structure. And so what GraphQL allows you to do is to, you know, have the components think about the whole world as a tree and they only need to worry about their branch of the tree. But then if they make any changes to that data, somehow magically it projects that into a graph, which then updates other components, even the same app to reflect the new state. And it can do that seamlessly. So I think there's a lot of, um, it makes sense to me. (laughs) The problem, of course, is that with these kinds of models like GraphQL, You kind of have to come up with your own query structures because the things you query essentially have to correspond one-to-one to to the components in your app. And so uh, you're sort of, in your query language, enforcing what the structure of your UI is. So I haven't quite figured out if that maybe ends up biting you in some other way in the future. But so far, I'm liking these new ways of thinking about UI design. And all of this sounds like You've been playing with Ohm as well, because you mentioned before the call that you've had some interest in Ohm. And so it sounds like you're taking advantage of Ohm on top of this React framework and ClojureScript and the combination of those two that you get Ohm as well. And do you take advantage of all this GraphQL with all the Ohm stuff that you're doing? Yes. So Ohm is, you know, by David Nolan, is essentially, well, the Ohm Next. So just recently, he's he's developed an alpha version of the, the sort of the next generation of Ohm which he calls Ohm Next, and it incorporates these ideas from these graph query languages into Clojure. So it lets you very uh, neatly create components that tell you what kind of data they need, and then your app kind of has a little engine that binds all the different queries together. And So anyway, so that's kind of what Ohm Next uh, gives you. And the original Ohm, it was basically Clojure's answer to uh, React or I mean, it has React as a dependency. So basically what it does is it looks at React and anyone who looks at React who's into functional programming realizes really quickly, hey, this is really functional programming that they're doing. They just don't want to call it that because they don't want to scare people away. So Ohm just takes that to another level. And yeah, I mean, I don't know how much you want kind of want to go into React. I don't, may already be an old hat for your uh, listeners or it may not be, I don't know. 
We'll give a little bit of rundown because it'd be interesting to talk about Ohm because I haven't had anyone who's actually really used Ohm too much on the podcast to talk about it. So, yeah. So the basic idea behind Ohm is: wouldn't it be great if you built a, a web page out of nested components and each component just had a function in it called render? And all that render does is it just returns a big chunk of HTML saying, right now, this is what I should look like. So if you make some change, you know, you click on a component, like, you know, let's say, uh, you know, add a, an extra item to a list that's a component, then you just call the render function after that item gets added to the list. And then that list component just says, hey, here's my new HTML. And it, the only way it's different is it has a new list item in it because that's, that's what the person just created. And of course, people have been thinking about this for a long time, the idea that maybe because everyone always knows DOM manipulation is so darn slow in browsers, what if we just kind of do all the DOM manipulation offline in JavaScript, and then we just kind of shotgun a whole chunk of new HTML into the web browser after we've made all of our changes, and we just basically hand a giant string to the browser saying, hey, here's the new web page. <laughs> And that has a certain appeal. The problem is that you run into other types of performance problems, you know, because you have to rebuild a lot of components. And if you don't rebuild a lot of components, then you have to do these complex delta calculations where you figure out, okay, you know, the list before had three items in it. And now we have HTML that says the list has four items. So instead of creating all new four items, deleting the old three ones and adding four new ones, let's just be smart and add an additional item at the bottom. So that's kind of delta calculation is what React does. And so Ohm kind of takes that to the next level. You know, each component has a render function that where you can essentially express what your HTML is. Uh, you know, you do it in, in a way that's a little smarter than just a text string. But then the next thing that Ohm did is David Nolan is a big believer in having a single giant app state atom. So just a single data structure that contains all of the state for your app, kind of a data store that runs inside of the client. And that type of data structure, you run into these problems again, where if I have a child component, it only needs to know about one branch or maybe two branches of this large app state blob. And so how do we read and write in the app state from that component? Because we don't want that component to know about all the other stuff in that blob. So we somehow have to sort of channel just the pieces that that subcomponent needs from the larger data structure. And so Ohm came up with this very clever idea called cursors, which are similar to functional zippers, where you have this object that just seems like a regular closure data type, and you can like recurse into it and pick out parts of it. But while you're doing that behind the scenes, the cursor library is actually keeping track of your path. And so if you make any modifications deep inside of something, it can apply it to the state object at the top level by properly recursing in. It's also kind of similar to the whole set queue. Boy, I'm getting rusty on my common lisp. This idea that you can have data structures where you, you have these macros in common lisp where you can say, you know, I just want to set the third item in this list to five or whatever. And then the uh, macro will actually like generate a little piece of code to like dig deep into that object, make the change, and then return the whole larger object back to you. And it's a, kind of a similar idea. So that's what Ohm did. But then you quickly realize that that's kind of a really nasty hack and you run into all kinds of weird bugs where in certain events of the web browser, if you try to interact with the state, these tricks where the cursor tries to hide all the ugliness from you sometimes fail and it makes for really nasty bugs. 
So with Ohm Next, it has a completely different approach. It's a much more functional because it uses this GraphQL language. It's, it's much more abstract. And the problem also that Ohm had is it didn't give you any answer for how you talk to the server, which made it kind of only halfway useful as a web development framework. So with Ohm Next, by adopting this GraphQL concept, it not only makes it much easier to deal with local state in, in the, uh, the local app blob, but then you can also, with the same syntax, talk to the server. That expands on my own knowledge a fair bit because I had heard it was built on top of React and the benefit of Ohm and the way it can get its benefit is that because it's a immutable data structure under the covers, it can know the parts of the immutable data structure that changes because if you've got an immutable list or vector or whatever, you know that that thing has changed because essentially the idea has changed because its content has changed. And then you can kind of know that at one point things you need to start looking down. And if you have a list with 70 items in it, you know that that list has changed. And then you can start just doing a quick scan of those 70 items to figure out those items themselves that had changed because they were swapped out and have different IDs instead of traversing the whole graph underneath each one of those items in the 70. Yes, you're absolutely right. That was one very important part of the story that I, I didn't mention. So React by itself has pretty decent performance, but then there was a certain magic of combining React with immutable data structures that made it even more powerful because in JavaScript or any language, if you have these persistent immutable data structures, it's very easy to to do uh, equality checks because you can just do pointer comparisons in a lot of cases. So that's something that React made public before Facebook released their own immutability library which they did sort of shortly after David Nolan showed what was possible. So React kind of has their own version of persistent data structures for that same reason. But yes, Ohm was the first project to kind of make that idea public. So how do the components work? Because I was just thinking that the components were the just the individual components in the data structure, and you would just traverse it and you say, okay, go render this. And then that would render each one of those sub-items, and then they would render their sub-item. But it sounds like it actually is a little more component-based than just the nested items in a data structure. Yeah, so with Ohm, you had to have a, a certain structure for your local uh, app state in the browser. So the initial version of Ohm, Ohm 1.0, if you wanted to render your UI, you kind of had to traverse through that data structure that made up the app state and kind of hand it off to each individual component. So if you ran into a situation where your app state had a very different structure from how the components are laid out on the screen hierarchically, you could run into a lot of trouble. And then with Ohm Next, essentially what it does is it just uses another level of abstraction. So what it says there is you have your data in your data store, whether it's on the client or the server, and it has one structure. And then you have your um, you have this query language that kind of queries against sort of an imaginary data structure that doesn't really exist, but you can write functions that will fulfill the requests of the queries. So you create these reader and mutation parsing functions in Ohm Next that fulfill these requests, but the data structure that you're querying doesn't really exist for real because you have an extra layer where you can adapt the language to the actual database. And then that query language does have to somewhat closely match the structure of your UI. So that's really kind of the neat trick that these query languages let you do. The way you're querying with the query language is not the database. 
but you're sort of querying this imaginary data structure that might be very inefficient to actually have for real. But then the onus is on the developer of the app to write functions that fulfill the requests of the query against the database. So you have that extra layer of control for mapping one into the other, and that's what makes it work. That sounds like a lot of good information and fills in a lot of gaps from what I've heard about Ohm. Because again, I just had the headed on my radar as, hey, this is this is a neat concept built on top of React that takes advantage of functional programming and immutability even more so, but didn't have a good picture of how that was done. So this has been a good rundown of that for me, and I'm sure other people as well. And then the things that Ohm is actually looking forward to in the next version as the future progresses. Yeah, I see a lot of possibilities with this type of approach. And I think David Nolan has sort of said that at some point in the future, these ideas like GraphQL, like people just shake their head at people before these things came out, just wondering, you know, how did people get anything done before they did it this way? And, you know, this same idea came out of different places. You know, Falcor and GraphQL are very similar and they're from two different companies. Yeah, it sounds really neat. And the other thing I knew about React, which, and especially with Ohm and the way it treats its immutable data structures, is one of those things that is, again, we've talked about games and the power of games a lot in this conversation, but the whole fact of a lot of games were based off that partial redrawing. Mm-hmm. How much stuff can I do without actually having to go re-render the whole thing because I can save a lot of information, like the old side scrollers with the pretty standard background where most of it was the same color like the Mario style games where it's here's the background, here's the base, and it's all the same except for the gaps in where you fall into. And then there's a few pixels interspersed with the enemies and the blocks around it. But by only having those small areas that can change, it saves me a lot of computation for actually having to go redraw everything that may or may not be needing to be done. Yes, yes. I mean, I think the poster child for this is the original Commander Keen game for uh, that I think was... It was an early PC game. It was one of the first games done by John Carmack. And it essentially did a side-scrolling game similar to Super Mario Brothers, even though there was just no processing power to do that. And of course, the way it did that is it just very judiciously updated only very tiny rectangles on the screen to perform a lot of the motion in a way that avoided large redraws. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like we've got a long history of going back and finding stuff that was done 20, 30 years ago and saying, you know what, that really was a good idea. Why did we ever lose that? Yeah, and the most recent probably example is the whole idea of the uh, Go channels and how they borrowed the communicating sequential processes idea. And then that now is also in core async for closure. And I think Haskell has their own implementation of that. These are really good ideas. And it's really, I think it's just always goes to show you people come up with these very simple things all the time where you just wonder, you know, why didn't people think of this before? And uh, I think there's still a lot of stuff like that that we're going to find where people are going to come up with very basic new programming operations and stuff and add them to programming languages. And it will just all be dumbfounded that nobody figured that out 30 years ago. And, you know, in some cases, they even did figure it out 30 years ago and everybody forgot about it in the meantime. (laughs) Which seems to be more often the case is, why didn't anybody think about this? And someone finds out, oh, no, we did. They did think about this 30 years ago. They thought about this 60 years ago. Yeah. But the constraints have changed since then. So we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater and forgot a lot of that as well. Yep. Yep. So we're getting kind of towards the end. And I know you do have one other thing you've been interested about. So I want to give you the chance to kind of 
talk about blockchains at a high level and kind of give everybody an introduction to them and why you think they're interesting. Because as you mentioned earlier, you also have a book on them that you've done as your latest book. So what's interesting about blockchains to you and how they fit in? Because when we were setting up this call, you mentioned that you're thinking of them as a persistent functional data structure. So how do those fit in with what you're doing and where does that interest lead you? Yeah, so this is kind of the thing I've been excited about most recently. And because of that, my thoughts are still only loosely formed around it. But I think there's some really interesting possibilities. You know, if you look at these sort of persistent databases like Datomic, and you look at what people are now doing with blockchains in something like Ethereum system, which is probably sort of the most recent and most powerful blockchain-based cryptocurrency. So that system has these smart contracts that you can put into the blockchain, into the ledger of data, and that essentially give you a very highly managed way of introducing source code into a running program. That's really what it's about. And I, you know, when I see that, when I see what you can do with smart contracts, I kind of wonder, why don't these databases already have this? And I'm sure they do somewhere. I mean, I've done a lot of PLSQL programming back in the day, but if you wanted to change a PLSQL function in Oracle, it wasn't really a, a very controlled system in that if you look at something like Ethereum, like the moment you write Ethereum contract to the system, it only relates to transactions that happen atomically after the contract was applied. And you can do really cool things with like uh, live software updates if you use these types of smart contract systems. But anyway, just to give like a three minute overview of like how this is a cool idea. So let's say you wanted to build a rideshare service and people have thought, hey, you know, wouldn't it be great to use Bitcoin or something like that for ride sharing? Sure. You know, you can come up with these arguments like Uber charges 30% on every fare. You know, that's kind of a waste of money, you know, because there's a, basically a man in the middle taking a cut and they have a monopoly and all that. But if you just forget about all that, these technologies are interesting just from a pure data perspective in that, let's say somebody says, hey, I need a ride and they give their location. And then the software system has to figure out, okay, well, which rider should go to this location? So in a traditional client-server application, we know exactly how that works. The person who needs a ride, they have a phone or whatever, they say, hey, I want a ride. So the, a message goes to the server, and the server in the database says, okay, we have a new person who needs a ride. And then there are these rules engines that run on the server saying, hey, are there any rides that we can link up with available taxis or available cabs? And if so, we should send an alert to the driver saying there's a fare for him to pick up. So that's kind of the classical client server model. And I think the interesting model now is the idea where the person who needs a ride just is on a peer-to-peer -peer network and they broadcast a message saying, hey, I need a ride. And then that message just gets broadcast widely over the entire network telling everybody, hey, there's a new person who needs a ride. And that essentially represents a transaction. They're transacting against the network saying there's a new ride that needs to be fulfilled. And then every single device that's on the network it doesn't matter if it's in one of the driver's cars or it's in the data center, adds that to a local database, that new fact, that new transaction about somebody needing a ride. And then each device individually checks to see who is the correct person to fulfill that ride. And so it's a really a different model where you just broadcast information. Everybody just records it locally on a local database. And then essentially each database basically just has one person querying it, which is the computer that that database is in. And you can build these systems now because data storage has gotten so cheap 
that you could have all the rides for Uber in a city, you know, that might be like five gigabytes of data a year. So if you go to Newegg and buy a, a four terabyte hard drive for 120 bucks, you have the next thousand years or whatever of storage for your computer. You can just essentially store all the data locally. Then you can just throw away the server. You no longer need a server. Just make sure the message gets broadcast on the network. Everyone writes it down. And then, of course, all you're left with is these really nasty data consistency issues. You both need to make sure everybody's running the exact same version of the software. Or, you know, otherwise two drivers might think they're supposed to go to pick up that ride because in the old version of the software, it was, you know, the person one would win. And in the new version, person two would win. So you have to make sure everybody is running the exact same version of the software. And you have to make sure all the databases are consistent. So if a single computer happened to be off of the network when that ride was announced, that computer, when they get back on the network, has to have a way of retrieving and syncing up to the missed messages that happened while they were gone. And so if you try to build that kind of a system where there's no server, and it doesn't even have to have a currency, and it doesn't even have to be decentralized because all of the messages could be controlled by a single entity. And I think if you want to build that kind of a system, the blockchain system seems to be the way to go. And people have solved part of this problem in the past with things like Paxos and, and Raft and these types of algorithms. But at least as a novice, it seems like there's really new things happening when it comes to tightly controlling software code along with data updates. There's new stuff happening in the blockchain community that doesn't exist yet in the database community. Anyway, sorry, that was kind of a long explanation. No, that's a good rundown. And not blockchain specifically, but the distributed behavior and distributed systems is something that I've been getting into more and more. And so this sounds like another interesting perspective that people are taking to solve the problem as far as a concurrent data structure that gets distributed across and nodes essentially being offline at any time because phone battery went dead and now how do I do this and then balance the needs of, as you said, what's the storage thing if I have to store the whole history and at what point do we get things and how do we have connections and then reconcile those things so... I guess in blockchain, you mentioned everything has to be on the same version of the system instead of having kind of a consensus thing where two drivers might say, I could pick this up, I'm running version A of the software, and someone's running version B, and then there's some other consensus that says, you've agreed to pick this up, but we'll confirm that you are the entity that wins this bid essentially based off a consensus algorithm. Is that part of the blockchain from at least what you've gotten into with blockchain so far, or is that something that you haven't discovered yet? Yeah, so the idea behind smart contracts is let's say we have an algorithm that we're using to decide who the correct driver is to pick up that person. Now, the next day, maybe we developed a newer algorithm. So we put that into the blockchain saying we have a new algorithm now to decide who picks up what ride. So we have to deploy that to all devices at the exact same moment, because otherwise in the in-between period, you might have two people trying to pick up one person because one is still running the old version of the software. One of the things that these smart contracts solve is that they actually treat the software that decides how the algorithm for picking the correct person, they treat that as another element to store in a script on the blockchain. So you can timestamp it and it says very clearly at this precise atomic spot, anybody after that uses the new algorithm and anyone before that uses the old one. So with that type of system, you can upgrade everybody simultaneously and seamlessly and you can switch from one algorithm to another one that maybe gives completely different results without ever having two people try to pick up the same person at the same time. 
So that's really what I see there that I've never seen anywhere else. And I'm sure people, uh, I'd love to hear if people told me previous systems that can handle not only atomic reads and writes to the database in a distributed way, but actually store the code that interacts with the database as scripts and also atomically applies those at specific moments in the database. That's really what's really fascinating to me. Yeah, the way you describe it, there seems like there's some interesting problems there that could get you into trouble if you're not careful of. It has to be instantaneous. So what happens if it gets delayed? And then the other interesting thing is that you're now sending actual code. So how do you ensure that the code that you're sending and everything is what you're supposed to be getting and not an injection attack, essentially? Yeah. So everything has to be super, super sandboxed. And what was the first thing you mentioned? (laughs) Just the instantaneous updates across everything to make sure that that timestamp and that there are no delays in getting that. So that's where you get into this issue that Bitcoin has, and I'm sure you've heard of confirmation times where they say, oh, you should wait for several confirmations. So that same system in Ethereum, which is the more powerful blockchain system that lets you do this kind of stuff, they also have confirmation times. But one confirmation only takes, I think, uh, what is it, 15 seconds now. So you may want to wait like 45 seconds or a minute before you know that you really are the writer that's supposed to pick up that person. And there's a tiny window within that one minute where it might say that you should pick somebody up and then it could still change its mind. So that's where it gets into these tricky issues. But in theory, uh, it can resolve all of that cleanly if given just a a few more seconds. (laughs) And with the next version 2.0 that they're going to be releasing, they're using a newer algorithm where they're trying to get that down into like uh, confirmations that are like just two or three or four seconds. So it'll be interesting to see if they can pull that off. And so your latest book is Bitcoin or was it blockchain in general? And they kind of covered some of these advancements as well. So what was the timing of your book and what it covers compared to some of the other stuff that you've found and played with since then? Yeah. So what it basically comes down to is that Bitcoin, when it first came out, is really that that system has lots of applicability. And me and my co-author, Chris Wilmer, uh, go into some detail on different things you can do with it. But it really is tightly bound to the idea of a currency. And to really apply it to a lot of other sort of ideas like application development, you need some more features that are hard to add on top of Bitcoin. So yeah, so the Bitcoin book I wrote is really focused on Bitcoin and Bitcoin blockchains and on the coolness of having this currency that has no central control. But the thing that really has gotten me excited in the last year is taking it to this next level, which didn't exist when we were writing the Bitcoin book yet. This all sounds interesting, and it's definitely yet another thing to go on the radar and probably get some other people either on here or find somewhere else to be able to help enlighten me, depending on if I can get the time to actually play with it and do, or at least do some research more on my own about it. So this is good information and very, very interesting things to start thinking about as well. Yeah. So we've covered a lot. Is there anything that we missed covering that you think we should at least bring up and make mention to? No, I think those are kind of the things uh, that come to mind that get me excited. Ohm Next and blockchains. <laughs> that sounds good. I want to make sure that we weren't going to leave anything else out that we didn't think about up front or you had something on your mind from this discussion and it sparked something else. And I want to make sure we didn't leave that out in case that happens. Because as in all conversations, certain ideas crop up that weren't thought of ahead of time or at least expected to think of. So I want to make sure there was nothing else we've left out before we start wrapping up. Yeah. I mean, you know, the sort of take home points I would say are, uh, I'd be personally really curious to hear 
the opinion of folks that have done a lot of distributed and sort of advanced database development and looking at some of these ideas from things like Ethereum, because I'm personally curious whether there's applicability there or if it's just that since I'm a novice, I don't realize that these things have already been done in other fields. And then just in general, I think everybody should try to get a handle on GraphQL and Falcor, these technologies that try to query application state. Those all sound good and there's sound like a lot of information to go back and have to research and I'm sure I'll be listening to this yet again, even as I do editing and everything else and pull things out. So is there anything you want to plug? Do you have appearances anywhere? I think you've done some conference presentations, but are you, is there anything you're helping going out and promoting or other side projects you're doing that you want people to know about or potentially get involved with you think people might be interested in checking out or just recommendations in general for people that you think the audience would appreciate? Yeah, I don't really have anything right now. In my free time, I am working on a uh, collaborative comic book tool that's built on blockchains where essentially people can submit panels and then the money that people pay gets parceled out based on how much people like different panels and stuff. So I'm building something like that. And that system is called Cartoon. It'll be uh, K-R, then the number 2N.com. So that may pop up in the next few weeks or so, but that's just a little uh, experimental project I'm doing. Otherwise, it's kind of quiet on my end right now. I'm just, I'm kind of in a phase of trying to learn new things. So uh, definitely, I need to start uh, actually using some of this stuff. (laughs) So you mentioned having people contact you if they've messed with some of this blockchain stuff. Do you have a call to action for any of our listeners aside from that? Or is there anything else that you want to ask of the listeners in general? Nothing comes to mind. So mainly just if they know about anything with Ethereum and how it's being used or might have been applicable in databases previously to let you reach out to you and let you know. Yeah, I'd love to know about that. So where can people follow you and find you online if they want to follow you and see what's going on with in the world of Dr. Conrad Barsky? I'm on uh, Twitter at uh, Lisperati. That's the best way to reach me. And also at uh, Lisperati.com. And you can get my email from there. And then you can find all your books, at least references, and where to get more of them from Lisperati.com, correct? Yeah, I should probably update some of the information on there. But certainly you can go to No Starch Press, which is nostarch.com, and you'll find the three books that I've been a author or co-author of. And certainly Amazon has all that stuff. I'll get all those added to the show notes so people can find you, track out more, go check out your books, and buy them and read them. Okay, so- sounds good. This has been a lot of fun. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Conrad, for giving your time to talk to me tonight. Sure, bye-bye. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.